Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversations, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Ramu Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and joining me as a co-host is our Legislative Director, Maria Gallagher. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much, Remel. It's great to be with you today. I'm always glad to have you here. Now, today's topic of conversation is a bit of a tough one, and we are going to be speaking about quote-unquote fatal or life-limiting prenatal diagnosis. We're so grateful that we have Tracy Windsor from Be Not Afraid Ministries here with us today to shed light on the experiences of parents who receive such difficult news about their pregnancy. She will also be sharing with us the kind of support and help that is available for them and the work they do at Be Not Afraid Ministries. But first, as always, let's begin with some inspiration and legislative update. As you all know, Mother's Day is just around the corner and we want to continue celebrating motherhood in all its shapes and forms. To share a little story, when I was at the post-row conference, post-Row America conference at Grove City last month. I keep bringing this up a lot, but that, that's made a huge impact on me. Um, but something that has stuck, me, uh, stuck with me is a phrase that one of the speakers used um, when she was talking about hospitality. She said, she talked about the, the radical hospitality of the birth mother who gives her baby to another family um, to care for. And I'd never looked at it that way, but it just got me thinking what an incredible gift the birth mothers gave their children and what an incredible gift they gave to this family that has been longing and desiring a child. And we just don't talk about it enough. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was also listening to an interview of Melissa Cole who at 18 was pregnant, uh, who almost had an abortion, but had a change of mind as she was lying on the abortion table. She was right there, um, but she had heard this voice say, get up and leave. And she decided to keep the baby. So she walked out of, the, of that place. Um, she gave birth to a beautiful boy, and then she placed him with another family through adoption. Her story has been made into a movie, Life Mark. Uh, it's uh, from, I haven't watched it yet, but it comes highly recommended from, uh, by my colleagues who have watched it. So if you're looking for a good Mother's Day movie, I think that's the one. Um, now in her interview, she shares about her faith being a big part of uh, what prompted her to choose adoption. But something that captured my attention was this, this very little detail. Um, the deciding factor for which couple she picked to be the parents of her son was this simple question. She asked, um, she asked this woman, how do you bait your hook down there? And, and she shares later on that she wanted a mom who would bring experiences, who would give her son similar experiences to what she would if she were taking care of her son. And that was such an incredible reminder of the unique experiences, dreams, and hopes that birth mothers have for their children. And 
I think it's so important that to never ignore that. So this Mother's Day, we at the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation want to honor and acknowledge birth mothers everywhere. We see your radical hospitality in carrying a baby and birthing them, and also the heroic act of, of sacrifice in placing your baby with another loving family. It's not an easy choice, but you have made that courageous and brave decision, and we want to take this time to just honor you for that. On that note, let's hear from Maria, the legislative update for this week. Thank you so much, Remmel. The following is from a National Right to Life news release. National Right to Life applauds a recently filed case in California challenging the state's assisted suicide law as unconstitutional. We will be closely monitoring developments as this case could have nationwide implications if successful. Assisted suicide is legal in nine states, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, and Washington, DC. Vermont lifted their residency requirements in order for people to obtain assisted suicide joining with Oregon to become suicide tourism states. Vermont in particular permits assisted suicide by telemedicine, meaning non-residents could be prescribed lethal drugs virtually on the basis of a single virtual visit. The new case in California is claiming that the state's assisted suicide law is discriminatory in that it creates a two-tiered medical system in which people who are suicidal are protected and treated, while a person with a terminal disease, which is classified as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, is not protected, but given the option of lethal medication to end their life. According to a legal synopsis from the plaintiffs, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, is an important federal law that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in various aspects of life, including medical treatment. The ADA defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life function. This includes people who have a record of such an impairment, even if they do not currently have a disability. It also includes individuals who do not have a disability but are regarded as having a disability nonetheless. Individuals who are facing life-threatening conditions qualify as people with disabilities under the ADA, as those conditions themselves not only cause physical and or mental impairments, they are impairments that substantially limit major life functions. The lawsuit seeks to establish that California's assisted suicide law is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and the Equal Protection and Substantive Due Process Clauses in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And if you want to learn more about this issue, please visit the website endassistedsuicide.org. That's endassistedsuicide.org. Remmel. Thank you, Maria. Our guest today is Tracy Wenzel from Be Not Afraid. She's the co-founder of Be Not Afraid, a case management support service for parents who carry to term following a prenatal diagnosis. 
They have welcomed over 300 infants over the past 14 years, and Tracy oversees all aspects of the parent support program. She also serves as the lead in the organization's birth and newborn care plan development process. As a primary BNA trainer, she is currently develop, developing and implementing a BNA service curriculum and certification program nationwide. And this effort is part of a national collaboration undertaken by BNA, which is Be Not Afraid, Heartbeat International, the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and Her Plan. Her own experiences of perinatal crisis and loss inform the care she provides to the parents served by BNA. Welcome, Tracy, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here to share information. Thank you. We are so grateful because this is such a difficult topic, and there are not a lot of people who speak about this. So um, we're, we're very grateful for um, the work that you do and also just for the wealth of information that you're bringing to us today. Thank so you. So I, I wanted to start off with... Um, well, we just shared about your own experience. Um, you are not unfamiliar with loss uh, when it comes to um, children. So could you share a little bit about that? And also what prompted you to, to found this ministry for parents with prenatal diagnosis? Yes, uh, my own experience uh, was in um, two miscarriages. Um, and then I unexpectedly had a child who required immediate NICU care at birth. Um, so I know a little bit about NICU and I know a lot about loss. And um, I was working in bereavement ministry at my local parish. And I had a dear friend that was also working at her parish. And um, the reason we decided to initially, we thought we were looking for someone else to do this work. But we had two families that were um, within my parish who experienced prenatal diagnoses and did not get the kind of support that they really needed. So Sandy and I thought, well, we, we need to go find someone who would do this. And we found research on perinatal hospice, which was kind of a new concept then. So we thought, you know, there's got to be a doctor or maybe there's a hospital system or someone who will develop, we thought, perinatal hospice support. Um, and after about a year, we realized no one was going to do that. Um, and we had met a nurse who was very encouraging, and she said, you all could do that. Um, and so we kind of reluctantly uh, initiated that service. Tell me, what options are available to parents who receive a diagnosis for their unborn child? So I think it's probably safe to say that most parents understand that they have the option of terminating the pregnancy, and that's without regard to the nature of the diagnosis. So um, termination is made clear and routinely offered whether baby has a heart defect that might be something that offers a newborn surgery or um, whether baby has Down syndrome or whether baby has um, something like anencephaly where the brain doesn't fully develop. Um, oftentimes, what's less clear to parents is that another option is to carry to term um, and let the pregnancy progress normally um, and focus care depending on the nature of the diagnosis. So if baby has a, a really significant diagnosis like anencephaly, um, focus the care on mom. If baby has a diagnosis like Down syndrome or the heart defect, um, the care would continue as it would with any other pregnancy. Um, so again, sometimes that possibility is not made so clear to parents. And then you have options for care if you're carrying to term. Um, and largely they're dependent on where you live. 
Um, maybe you live in a city or a community where a hospital has what's called a palliative care program that might be beneficial for you. Um, or you, or they perhaps have a perinatal hospice program within the hospital system. Sometimes the difficulty with palliative care and perinatal hospice is that um, palliative care programs can be very different. So sometimes it's not just a matter of finding one, but finding the right one. And the same is true with regard to perinatal hospice support. Um, we knew when we did our year of trying to find a provider to address this issue in Charlotte, North Carolina, that one of the big problems was if, if a hospital where you live has this uh, program, you have to have the right insurance to get to that hospital. And oftentimes in order to connect with the program, you have to go through the whole diagnosis experience again and probably be offered abortion again just to get to the doctor who's gonna help you carrying to term. So it's one of the reasons that we said, you know, maybe it's valuable to have a program that isn't attached to the hospital system, but rather can go wherever the parents are, wherever they plan to deliver. Yeah, I would imagine that that's a lot of challenges uh, for the parents who are already in a state of, I don't know how to move forward. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, the BNA model and, and what is it that you offer um, and the kind of, uh, like, how is that different? Yeah, well, we, we started out focused on the perinatal hospice model of care, um, but we were providing services peer ministers, not as medical providers at that point. And uh, we decided as we looked at the parents who were coming to us for support, that it wasn't just the parents who would normally qualify for a perinatal hospice support who needed help. So a way to think of this is, um, I mentioned anencephaly where the brain doesn't develop. That would be an appropriate perinatal hospice referral. Um, the parent who has a diagnosis of Down syndrome is not an appropriate perinatal hospice referral. So from a pro-life perspective, um, it's a very small number of parents with a prenatal diagnosis who can qualify for perinatal hospice. And we miss the majority of parents. Sometimes, importantly, the abortion rate associated with anencephaly is not that different than the abortion rate in some circumstances associated with Down syndrome. So we thought, you know, we want to be available to any parent who's experienced a prenatal diagnosis because the experience itself is difficult. Subsequent to that, we actually have medical research now that indicates that parents experience the prenatal diagnosis as a traumatic event, um, meaning it's shocking, um, mm -hmm. they don't know how to move forward, it's life-threatening often for, for them, for their baby, often there's quality of life judgments, abortion is offered, that can be very shocking to parents who are already in committed obstetric care. Um, so over time, you know, initially we said we're going to take any kind of diagnosis. Over time we realized, um, in particular, for the, the babies with significant intellectual disability, parents need a lot of support in finding the right information about their care options. Um, so what we are 14 years later is a little different. We provide case management support, which is very parent-centered and very baby-centered. Um, it's a service that's trauma-informed, meaning that we um, are cognizant of how to best serve individuals who are traumatized. Um, by an experience, and we work on that. We're also focused on bereavement. Um, we work really hard to prepare parents for the birth, um, making clear that they understand. In many cases, they have a if they have a baby with a very severe diagnosis, they have some decisions to make. Um, and so we're focused on making the birth as 
anticipated and helping them anticipate all the options and helping them have a plan and getting that approved by their medical providers. Um, and then we support them for one year without regard to what the outcome is. So if we have parents who whose baby dies at birth, we have parents who have a baby who's in NICU or in a, in a cardiac unit getting heart surgeries, and then we have parents who ultimately have a baby at home. Um, so that's kind of the most basic description of our service. Wonderful. And what is the general response that parents receive from medical professionals? You know, I think our experience has been that the, the medical community is, is in some ways more supportive than we ever anticipated. Um, I said that we kind of reluctantly, my co-founder and I entered into this because we thought we didn't have a prayer of getting a referral as a pro-life organization, and in our case, a Catholic organization. Um, and we found that uh, the parents that we supported looked so well at birth that, that most of our referrals in Charlotte, North Carolina, were coming from medical professionals who weren't pro-life um, and who knew that some parents were going to carry to term and they wanted those parents to get good care. So we often find that, you know, it's entirely possible that doctors don't give the best information about carrying to term at diagnosis because they don't know the information to give and they don't have services necessarily to connect parents to. Um, and they see a lot of parents terminate. Most parents terminate at diagnosis, 80% roughly. Um, and those look like terrible. They're very emotionally difficult experiences. And that's what they think caring to term would look like. And they think maybe getting it over faster would be better. Um, so our experience, again, has been that the medical community in general is, is more supportive than we expected. Most parents will find a medical provider if they make the decision to carry to term who makes all the difference in the world. It may not be the person they started out with, um, but by the time baby's born, most of the parents we support, you know, um, we have assisted them in figuring out where they want to be and, and what are the right kinds of conversations to have um, and how to make medical providers more comfortable with the decisions that they're making. Um, and then sometimes they're looking for new medical providers. Sometimes it depends on the state. So um, in some states, it's much more common to say I'm carrying to term and theoretically have a doctor say, well, you need a new doctor because I'm not going to deal with that. So sometimes there is that complication. Um, but in general, I think we, we find from our parent surveys and from their surveys about NICU experiences, um, our support certainly is, is focused on helping them get the best possible relationship with their medical providers because they really need that. We can't provide that to them. And our experience has been that, that most parents find that person who will respond to them um, and respond to their baby. A lot of this is about not losing sight of the baby's humanity in the middle of a diagnosis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I, what I'm hearing is that you help, you empower parents to ask for what they need in their difficult time uh, um, to get what they need from the medical professionals, and uh, and and that's one of the ways that you you help parents through this process. Yes. So, um, could you tell us a, a, about what what has been the experience of parents who choose to carry their babies to term despite having a terminal diagnosis? Yes. Um, you know, probably the first issue to address in that question is just that uh, the, the pro-life community has gotten so comfortable using lethal language around prenatal diagnoses as if it is accurate that a doctor can tell you at diagnosis when and if your baby will die. 
And one of the ways that we empower parents best is by giving them the research that exists. There's a ton of medical research out there that's very mm -hmm. supportive of a pro-life position. So for instance, we have articles, medical articles, um, that document that lethal language, like terminal prenatal diagnosis, is attached to baby at birth to make it easier to abort, mm -hmm. um, to make it easier to limit care at birth, um, because the doctors consider the baby so disabled that their life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. um, so earlier you had talked about life limiting, that's actually the better term to use. So often the first thing we're saying to parents is, we know that you've been told that this baby will not survive to term. That's not our experience. Most of our parents actually get to term, most have a live birth. Um, and you've probably been told there's no hope for baby at birth, that medical care doesn't offer any options. Ba that's not entirely accurate in many instances. Certainly something you want to explore may not be something you can get at the hospital that you're at. Um, so, so parents are often first finding that some of the information they have needs some updating. And we're doing that by giving them the research that they can walk in to their provider. Um, sometimes they find that what they want is not necessarily available to them in, in the hospital they're at. So they've got to do some shopping around. Um, but again, most parents find that, um, you know, if they can talk, for instance, to their doctor about a baby, it will, let me make it more simple. If they can say to their doctor, listen, we've made a plan for death. We know that death is likely here, but we also want to make a plan for baby to survive. Most doctors will say, oh, okay. Their concern as a doctor is that the parents aren't really understanding how serious a diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. If all you see are abortions of these babies, even as a doctor, you may not realize that sometimes some babies surprise. And so they're generally more willing to work with parents to say, okay, well, let's talk about making a live birth a goal. Let's, let's talk about monitoring during labor and delivery. And, and maybe we can consider the option of letting you have a C-section to get to a live birth. So we, again, we often find doctors are willing to work with parents if parents are having the right conversations and backing their decisions up with research. Now, I can't help but be reminded of um, former Senator Rick Santorum and his daughter, and they were predicting her death while she was in the womb. And as far as I know, that girl is still going strong. So this whole idea of doctors being able to predict the death of a child um, has to be challenged and, and has to be thought about. Um, so I wonder, in your experience, what do parents who have received a diagnosis prenatally need most? Um, I, I think that I think the biggest thing is really the understanding that this is a traumatic event. Um, really within the medical community, even though there's research there, it's just not perceived that way. And frequently, even with those who are working in the medical community to address the needs of parents with a prenatal diagnosis, the mindset is that the birth is the, is the traumatic event. But sometimes that's why abortion is offered. We can save you that traumatic event without realizing that the trauma is being told that something is terribly wrong with a baby that you've already imagined delivering. Um, so I think trauma first. And... Um, and then grief care, because parents have lost the pregnancy and, and to some extent they've lost the baby, even if it's something that's survivable, they lost the baby that they thought was coming. And importantly, really, around those two issues is that parents should not be encouraged to rush to make a decision about what they do. 
now with the pregnancy, which is perceived as the problem. Um, we, we encourage individuals who are traumatized to slow down. Um, and we certainly encourage individuals who are bereaved not to make major life decisions because it's very easy to make a bad decision for yourself, um, especially when all of your options aren't clear. You know, a prenatal diagnosis is delivered generally by doctors who never treat living children. So parents are in this, the midst of this experience of getting all kinds of medical information. And sometimes one of the most important things we say to them is, well, your baby has a heart defect. You haven't spoken to a doctor yet that treats babies with heart defects. Maybe that's something you need to do. And often in the, in the immediacy of it, parents don't realize. They're like, well, I guess you're right. I hadn't thought about that. And sometimes even just getting to the neonatal provider. Um, so I think, you know, awareness of trauma, awareness of grief, slowing down and connection to um, the, the neonatal providers is hugely important. We, we actually, um, I think it's in the state of North Carolina, we were encouraging that the pro-life legislation include um, the requirement that at diagnosis, parents get an appropriate referral to neonatology, pediatric neurologist, pediatric cardiologist, somebody who treats the, the child, the child's diagnosis that they've been given. Oh, that's amazing. Um, we just have a few minutes. So could you share about BNA's training program? We, we talked about it a little in the intro uh, yeah. and just give us a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we're very excited. We're just graduating our first class. This is a completely online training, about 35 lessons, a lot of recorded content, and then we provide some content live online. Um, you know, the pro-life community really needs to step into this work, I feel strongly, because um, we have such a unique perspective of the child who was not born yet um, and unique from the medical community. So if anyone is interested in that program, we are training the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. We're training uh, pro-life organizations, pregnancy help centers, um, and they can go to our website and the training page at our website. So it's www.benotafraid.net. Um, and indicate that they want more information on the training, and then they will hear from me. Um, but so far, so good. It's been well-received by organizations, and um, ideally, we're looking for a service provider in each state. We're training 14 organizations now and three more that will be jumping on um, in another month or so. Thank you so much for being on the program today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is the largest single-issue pro-life organization in the Keystone State, with more than 40 local county-based chapters. We shine a spotlight on the most vulnerable individuals, from the very dawn of life to the twilight of life. Thank you for joining us for the program today. It wouldn't be the same without you. We are grateful for your continuing support and encouragement. And remember, quite simply, there's always a reason to choose life. We'll see you next time. Take care.